Please listen carefully. The Storytelling Fellowship at Making Contact gave me an opportunity to voice my concerns about violence against black women in our communities. And I was very lucky to have this opportunity to do so under the guidance and supervision of my fabulous producer, Laura Flynn, who allowed me to tell the story from my perspective and using the voices that were required to tell that story. It was a very engaging and very fulfilling experience for me. I hope the next Storytelling Fellows can count on your support. I heard I was two years old when I came into the foster care system. Many children, like Yolanda Vasquez, enter foster care every year. There's an estimated 400,000 children in the U.S. foster care system. Many of these children have suffered abuse and neglect from their families, only to experience it again at the hands of people entrusted with their protection. On today's show, we'll explore issues from the struggles of aging out to the alarming use of psychiatric medications. I'm Jasmine Lopez. You're listening to Making Contact. While teen pregnancy has declined throughout the years, it hasn't for girls in the foster care system. They're two and a half times more likely to become pregnant by the time they're 19. Nicole Rock was one of these young girls. Reporter Leticia Miranda brings us her story. And so where were you born? Oh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Where I lived at the time, I do not know. Nicole Rock has lived in many places in her lifetime. Where exactly my mom lived or where we were living after I left the hospital. I don't know. They lived in hotels and motels or whatever. I don't know. On this day, she's seated at a small dining table at her apartment she shares with her daughter in the Walt Whitman Housing Projects in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Their home is sparsely furnished with a small TV and a desktop computer. A pair of yellow drapes open to an almost uninterrupted view of Lower Manhattan. The sounds of the building and the Brooklyn Queens Expressway echo through the apartment. At 16, Nicole was put in New York City's foster care system with one of her younger sisters. She found herself in a system where she had very little of the support a 16-year-old girl might need. Like a lot of teen girls, she met a guy and didn't think too much about using birth control. She didn't think having a baby could be so bad. It will help me get my own apartment. I can get on welfare or do whatever I have to do because they'll be more willing to help a pregnant mother than somebody that's single. They'll just be moving me all over the place or I'll have to do everything by myself. Nicole is one of about half the girls in foster care who become pregnant by the time they're 19. New York City's Administration of Children's Services, or ACS, requires agencies to provide access to reproductive and sexual health services. Yet in practice, access doesn't always mean they're guaranteed those services, which makes it easy for some girls to fall through the cracks with each new foster home and social worker. As a result of moving from placement to placement, schools are changed, and the traditional avenues for sexuality education, whether it's schools or through parents, that doesn't happen because of all those disruptions in care. That's Kyle Lafferty with the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy. So the young people in foster care oftentimes find themselves really 
at a loss for that basic information. On her own, Nicole found a local hospital to get prenatal care. But it was her life at her foster home that made her pregnancy really difficult. For those months she was pregnant, Nicole remembers eating only ramen noodles and burgers. She says her foster mom refused to buy healthy food. And her social worker? When I would talk to her, she would just say things like, well, oh well. I used to go up to the agency pretty much when it was downtown Brooklyn. Go up there raving like a lunatic, and it's like, what's going on? I'm, I need food. While the national teen pregnancy rate has continued to decrease, the teen pregnancy rate in foster care has remained the same. Something that separates girls in care from their peers is their motivation to get pregnant and raise a family. If you've been a kid who's been removed from your family, you're in foster care. The one thing you probably hunger for more than anything is a family. That's Linda Bryant. She's a clinical professor at New York University's School of Social Work and has worked closely with pregnant girls in foster care. And I think for many of, of, of our young women, having a child means the opportunity to establish a family that is your own. And there's this sense that I didn't have control over being taken from mine, but I will have control over my family. But the system isn't quite set up to take care of families. We deeply care about the needs of pregnant and parenting youth who are in care. That is not the makeup of our system necessarily. So we do have an opportunity to really craft good policies to support them. That's Benita Miller, Deputy Commissioner of Family Permanency Services at ACS. Now, is it everything that you might want for your baby? Probably not, but I think that we are meeting the basic level of care. New York state laws require foster agencies to notify girls at 12 years old about reproductive health services, but that typically leaves it up to them to seek out those services on their own. Without consistent support networks, it can be difficult for girls to make and keep appointments or ask sensitive questions. Miller says that ACS as an agency isn't designed to meet every need of youth. Instead, she says their goal is for kids to be independent of the system. Our aim is to help create self-sufficient young adults, not to have people say that the system failed me in this way because they didn't provide for my needs, my material needs. Material needs are very fixed in time, as opposed to, did we get you up every day and make you feel motivated to go to school, to engage as a citizen? Nicole had suffered a brain aneurysm, which caused a stroke to hit her right side. She still has the scar on her right temple where the doctors did surgery to clear her brain of blood. She was in a coma for a week, and when she woke up, she was a mom. When I saw her, I counted the toes and counted the fingers and everything, but yeah, and I kind of undressed, undressed her and started putting her clothes back on, and that's when I realized I couldn't move my hand. She had lost mobility on her left side. Simple tasks became painfully difficult. Especially because when I left the hospital, everything was new to me. It was like, I felt like an alien. I couldn't cross the streets fast enough. And um, I learned how to write over. My therapist, he had like a fake doll and showed me how to feed my daughter with one hand. 
She was 17, a new mom, taking five different medications, and living with a foster mom and nurse who didn't approve of her having a baby. But it was just basically they were looking at me like, judging me. But her path through care eased when she got herself into a group home with other young moms raising babies in foster care. Lorraine Jacobs was her caseworker at the time. She saw immediately that Nicole was unique. She just had that drive, you know, she just had that drive. And, you know, even though through her challenges, she pushed, she pushed on. Nicole's daughter is now a smart, bubbly 11-year-old. Nicole will be graduating college this month. She's now interning at a law office and wants to go on to study family law at Yale to advocate for children in care. I'm pushing myself. I'm making it. I'm getting through it. <laughs> it's not over yet, but I'm so happy I got to this point. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually alive to see my dreams coming up ahead. And I'm just happy about that. This is like tears of joy, like, yes, I'm doing it. <laughs> For Making Contact, I'm Leticia Miranda. For more than a year, the Bay Area News Group has been documenting the alarming use of psychiatric medications in California's foster care system and the impact it's had on thousands of kids. From Los Angeles to the Bay Area to Humboldt County, reporter Karen Dessau and photographer Daya Sugano interviewed more than 175 people, including dozens of current and former foster youth who were frequently moved and heavily medicated. This is a radio adaptation of the documentary, Drugging Our Kids. I heard I was two years old when I came into the foster care system. It was 1993 when social workers took Yolanda from her mother, who had been living on the streets of Fresno. But young Yolanda soon found that life in foster care could be just as traumatic. <sighs> Sexual abuse, physical abuse, and emotional abuse happened when I was in the foster homes. The foster homes ended up making me very uh, shield, put a shield up. I was scared, I didn't know who to talk to, I didn't know who, who would believe me. To numb her pain and control her outbursts, doctors prescribed her a series of powerful psychotropic drugs, a practice that has become all too common in foster care. Our investigation found nearly one out of every four adolescents in California's foster care system is receiving psychotropic drugs. And 62% of those medicated kids are receiving the most powerful class of the drugs, antipsychotics. Antipsychotics are being used as a kind of chemical restraint. Um, and although they're being used to treat what's called disruptive behavior, for example, uh, really, they're not treating a psychiatric condition. They're really being used as sedatives. Under the law, doctors are free to prescribe medications for any treatment they see fit. But there are only limited uses for which federal regulators have approved psychotropic drugs. And many critics worry that it is dangerous to use them more broadly, especially for children. You're not with your mom and dad. You may have sustained an injury from your mom and dad. You're all confused. And so, based upon your development, you may lash out. You may not have 
the language to say what you're feeling. You may throw a chair, you may cry, you may punch a kid next to you. Um, and giving this child a pill is not the answer. For many children, foster care often translates to being moved to a new home again and again. And those who have worn out their welcome with foster families or relatives can end up in some of the least family-like settings, group homes that house tough-to-place kids. Yolanda moved an astounding 50 times before her 13th birthday. No place in California's foster care system depends on psychiatric meds more than group homes, where maintaining order can overshadow managing a child's fragile mental health. Oftentimes we do see requests not only from foster parents but from group homes that say, well, unless you put them on such and such medication, you have to find another home. That's horrible. That's, that's holding the child hostage unless you give them medication that they want. Um, that just shouldn't be. There is no dispute that even the riskiest drugs can be life-saving for the small sliver of kids who suffer from mental illnesses like schizophrenia and severe types of autism. But many former foster children say they were wrongly labeled with rare mental illnesses when what they were really suffering from was the unbearable trauma of being abused, abandoned, or both. In the short term, psychotropics can calm volatile moods, make aggressive children more docile, and even keep them safe. But there is growing and significant evidence of many of the drug's dramatic side effects. They cause sedation, they, they impair ability to learn, they basically dull everything. Weight gain, diabetes, obesity, lipidemia, which is high cholesterol. They lead to tics of the face, for example, involuntary movements. Perhaps even more alarming is what is not known about the long-term consequences of psychotropic drug use in children. The effects on the developing child's brain are unknown, but it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good at all. From 2010 to 2013, drug companies gave foster care prescribers $14.2 million for meals, travel, gifts, speaking engagements, and company-sponsored research projects. These doctors received an average of more than $15,000 apiece. California taxpayers spent $226 million on psychotropic drugs over the last decade, more than the state spent on any other kind of medication for foster kids. The treatment for sadness is not an antipsychotic or an antidepressant in a child. That's not a first-line treatment. First-line treatment is just to understand, to listen to the child. And oftentimes these children have no one that they feel that they can rely on or trust because every trust, every bond that they've had has already been broken. Hi, Levin. Hi, Hi. Nessie. Hi, how are you? I'm doing pretty oh, good. Good to see you. Hi, it's been so long. Gramps anymore. Hi. <laughs> Wow, let me take a good look. Thank you, Nancy. For Yolanda, finding someone to trust was even harder. Then, at 12 years old, she landed at the Lincoln Child Center, a residential group home in Oakland. There, she met Dr. Edmund Levin and therapist Nancy Forster. 
Levin had recently started at Lincoln. Stunned by the amount of medication that so many of the children had been prescribed, he embarked on a bold plan. Over the next two years, he reduced medication among his patients by 80%, and Yolanda would become one of his most successful patients. We were able to, to re see what would happen when you were off medication. The more we tapered you down, it was just delightful to see that yeah, the more you perked up, the less zombie-like you were, the better your speech was, and um, the more I think you were able to really participate in therapy. It was consistent that as our meds went down, incident reports for misbehavior went down. Yolanda's experience affirmed what Dr. Levin and Forster thought all along. Using powerful drugs to treat traumatized foster youth isn't the solution. Went to your room one night. You were reading, you were studying the dictionary, trying to catch up. And I just, as a mom, was like, wow. Um, because as, as you were waking, as those drugs were coming down, you were waking up and just saying, teach me. Lincoln freed Yolanda from the drugs. But still today, she's frightened that there are lingering effects of the medication. They also have a, a very uh, scary metabolic effect, such that people have described some of the, the side effects as involving metabolic X syndrome, where your, uh, your blood sugars get adversely affected. I know that. You know that, good. Your blood sugars can get affected and you can get diabetic. I know that. For almost three years, state officials have been working under a federal mandate to review the use of psychiatric medications on foster children. They've assembled a statewide panel of experts to study the problem and recommend solutions. But reformers say the state is moving too slow. We need to sort of get off the dime and move ahead with some reforms that actually ensure greater safety and appropriate care for kids. Kids cannot wait any longer. We don't need to create thousands of zombies in foster care like for years have existed in nursing homes who are on these same antipsychotic drugs. There is life after medication. Yolanda's recovery continues. She is living on her own now in Fresno and discovering new strength through a healthy diet and frequent trips to the gym. The Lincoln experience and a strong foster mom who took her in afterward gave Yolanda a path forward. We've been listening to the documentary Drugging Our Kids. After the break, we'll hear how one young woman went from homeless to college. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to download shows or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Typically, turning 18 has also meant aging out of the system, so no more reimbursements to subsidize care. 
Studies show foster youth lacking financial support face higher rates of homelessness and incarceration, and fewer finish high school or go to college. To help ease the transition into adulthood, in 2008, the federal government allowed states to claim reimbursements for the cost of care to the age of 21. California's version helped one young woman gain control of her life. Making contacts, Laura Flynn has the story. It was cold and there was like bums that um, hung out beneath on the lower level next to the river more. Um, Were you by yourself? Well, a couple of times like I tried to turn it into something that didn't seem like I was homeless because nobody really knew about like what was going on with me. Meet 21-year-old April Renee Sanders. To be able to have people by my side when I went down there, so I'd kind of explain it as like, hey, let's go down to, let's go down to the river, we'll do a bonfire, we'll meet up under the bridge, you know, we always go. Just so I'd have someone to kind of buffer the silence, I guess. Sanders rides her longboard as she recalls the handful of times she found herself seeking shelter underneath the train bridge in Reedley, a town in California's Central Valley. And just go down there and sleep for a few hours, and once anything woke me up, head on out again. For about three months, Sanders says, she rotated between friends' couches and the bridge, storing her belongings around town as she tried to find some semblance of comfort. I didn't really have that in my grandmother's home. Um, so I think even then I started like striving for a place to, to um, be comfortable. But anyways, she ended up kicking me out. Um, and I was kind of bouncing around from friend's house to friend's house to friend's house. Um, on a couple of occasions, I had to uh, sleep down by the bridge. And I had like a little spot there. It was scary as hell though. I had just turned 16, but um, and I still managed to make it to school every day, and, and then I saw the grades were failing, so I actually talked to my counselor, and she called the police and, you know, called my grandmother. At this point, Sanders enters the foster care system. First, she's placed in a shelter in Fresno, the next biggest city to Reedley. On a grading scale, like a C version of Skid Row. So, so it's like not a better version of Skid Row or Yeah, a, a better version of Skid Row. It's not as as bad as that, but um it's pretty damn close. And um it was called Craycroft. It's actually closed down now, which was really sad because I felt like um that was one of the places that I was more comfortable. Anywho, um it was like a little haven in the midst of C-rated Skid Row. <laughs> The Craycroft Youth Center was an emergency shelter for children and youth. Sanders stayed at Craycroft for about a month before being placed with the foster family. Her first placement didn't last long, but the second one, she would stay for over a year. Sanders says they had few disagreements, nothing major, but then... Two weeks before my 18th birthday, my foster mother told me that I had to leave. She um, told me that she put in a seven-day notice, which is seven days for the youth to pack their things... And so that particular story, I think, um, is something that I've heard commonly anecdotally. Kyle Sporleader is the statewide legislative coordinator for California Youth Connection, CYC, an organization trying to improve the foster care system. Similar to anyone kind of turning, turning 18, right? You're, you're feeling like you're about to become an adult. That can coincide with things like your high school graduation or about to go off to college or 
getting your first car, getting your first job, different types of milestones that signify a clear transition from adolescence to adulthood, or at least a first step in that. And with that, there can be, you know, some pressure, some stress, some anxiety, some nervousness. Um, that is magnified to an extreme extent when you're in foster care. As a foster parent, you receive a sort of financial subsidy to offset the cost of care. But often that subsidy ends when the youth turns 18. That impending cutoff, Sanders says, was a motivation for her foster mother. She ended up kicking her out before her seven days were up. I had told her, like, go, like, calm down, take a breather, whatever else. And um, she was like, no, I want you out of my my house right now. Like, call. I'm either going to call the cops or I'm going to call your grandfather. And um, I don't want to be a disappointment to my grandpa. Like, So I told her to call the cops, and then the cops came. But Sandra's foster mother ended up calling her grandfather, too. You know, and then my aunt had actually been the one to come pick me up. And then my grandfather was asleep at the time, so I'm, like, walking into their house, you know, and it's all quiet and... All the lights are out, and I'm moving in home oh again. Like, by the time you get through foster care, like, I don't know if you've ever moved before, but anytime you move, you're going to lose something. By the time you get through it all, you're glad you lost half of it because it gets heavy. In the meantime, Sandra's social worker was setting up her new placement. And then move all your stuff into this family's house after speaking with them for five minutes and basically hoping that they'll accept you and that they're not psycho. (laughs) While all of this was happening, Sanders was in her first semester of community college. A bill called California's Fostering Connections to Success Act, also known as AB 12, was about to be enacted. CYC SPORE leader says AB 12 came after years of seeing disproportionate number of foster youth aging out of the system, ending up homeless or incarcerated, and experiencing greater hardship than other disadvantaged youth. AB 12 was kind of formed by a group of child welfare advocates here in the state of California to figure out how we can better support foster youth in that transition to adulthood and independence. And one very kind of obvious way that struck most people was just allowing them to stay in the foster care system and have that network of support for a little longer. And so AB 12 extends the age at which foster youth can remain in foster care to 21 now. It wasn't that simple for Sanders. She was 18 when the bill was enacted, so she didn't qualify. But her social worker was able to fight on her behalf and gain her an exception. Since I was going to college at age 17, they were pretty much thinking that I already had my things together and was worthy, I guess, of being an exception, which was the very few that were made for a youth that turned um, 18 prior to the date that the bill was passed. So now, if you're a foster youth in California or one of the other two dozen states in the country with extended foster care, you have many more options to help you transition into adulthood. These include staying with your caregiver or something called supervised independent living. And with that, you have the ability to choose a place of your own, normally um, through independent type of contract stuff. You can't have like some roommate that you're just going to move in with or something. The amount that I got was $812, and that goes towards rent, transportation, food, all that kind of good stuff, so... It helped Sanders move toward her goals. Be comfortable in my own um, my own surroundings, my own home, the first place that I go to at the end of the day type of thing. So 
I think that's what I was striving for. It wasn't necessarily like I'm going to college and this is what I'm going to do, like type of drive. It was just the drive towards something that I could call my own and there were steps that need to be taken in order to get there. I'm actually going to California State University, Fresno. I'm a social work major. Back on our longboard, Sandra shows me around campus. Uh, it's really green, actually. Just Standing in the Peace Garden, she walks over to her favorite statue. It's Jane Addams, who received a Nobel Peace Prize in 1931 for her diplomacy and humanitarian efforts. The sculptured Addams wears a floor-length dress and holds a small child up, who's holding the world in her hands. Sanders reads one of the quotes on the statue. The good we secure for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secured for all of us and incorporated into our common life. Nothing certain. That one applies for false youth. Though that uncertainty maintains a gnawing presence for many, including Sanders, she hopes to be an example. Being able to go into my profession and say, hey, I was there where you were at. It's possible. You can have that glimmer of hope. It won't be stolen from you. And now there's a little more help to keep that hope alive. From Fresno, California, I'm Laura Flynn for Making Contact. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To hear the entire documentary, Drugging Our Kids, visit our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcasts, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Andrew Stelzer, George Lavender, Juan Booth, Laura Flynn, and Al Sasser. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Hi, my name is Al Sasser, and I was selected as a community storytelling fellow at Making Contact. After 31 years of prison, I have many stories to tell, one of which is about relationships that I fostered inside and managed to sustain while I'm out. We're doing a crowdfunding campaign right now. You'll see it announced at radioproject.org. Please join our fundraising campaign so that Making Contact can fund other storytelling people like me.